Well, it's Christmas Eve, and most of you know that. If you have any younger children in the home, you know that. And we have a gift inspector in our house. So we put the gifts out about a week early, and they, some of the kids know exactly where those gifts are and if any have been added. Right? We don't just put them all out, you know, like magically at 1 in the morning on Christmas Eve, but they, they periodically show up as they're wrapped. Right? Parents understand that. And so... They'll scour under the tree, but there's a great game you could play. You could keep changing the names on the gifts for that that individual gift inspector. We haven't done that. I think it's kind of cruel, but it is a recommendation, right, for those people. Uh, What has been your focus this week? What have you focused on? What's been the brewing center of conversation in, in your home? What has been your delight this week? There's a lot of things we can delight in. Good things, good gifts. But has any of it brought joy to the world? Right? What's happened at your table, in your kitchen. That's where we do most of our talking, in our kitchen. Has it brought joy to the world? Has it brought peace on earth? Has it brought goodwill towards others? I've been pondering something all week, and that is, as a culture, even as Christian people, I think we are no longer amazed by what is truly amazing. Right? We get, and and I'm not saying these things are wrong, we get amazed at a new recipe, and we take a picture of it, and we explain how we cooked it, and we post it, a picture of the finished product. Or a new film, and Uh, These these awesome new characters and the cliffhanger ending and the way forward for the story. And we, man, we talk about this with great delight and we interact. And those things are not wrong unless they're unaccompanied by something that's greater and more amazing. If I were to choose a title this morning, it would be Amazed by the Truly Amazing. And are we amazed by that? Some of that has to do with how we view our own depravity. Do we, do we have a biblical view, a, God, a God's eye view of our own depravity, our own sin, to be truly amazed at the grace of God which loved us even when we were sinners? Right. So we, so we get amazed by a new gadget or a new accessory or a new outfit or a new technology. And we sort of live there, but even as believers, we're never... Truly amazed by the height of God or the depth to which He came to save us from our sin. This is what's truly amazing. John explains it this way. And the Word, which in John chapter 1 he says is God, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. God lived among us. We could observe Him. God lived among us so the Apostle John could lean against God during a meal. God lived among us so a sinful lady, she had that reputation in the community, could come in and cry on his human feet. He lived among us so that men could spit on his beard and blindfold him and hit him and say, prophesy, who hit you? See, to me, that's amazing that the Word would become flesh and dwell among us. 
There's a passage that explains what really happened at the birth of Christ. Open your scriptures to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to begin reading in verse 6. We'll go back and look from verses 1 to 5 as well. Philippians chapter 2. Verse 6 says this. Of course, the last two words of verse 5 identify the subject, Jesus Christ. Verse 6, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. It's a single Greek word used in verse 7, and it refers to Christ emptying himself. It refers to an abasing, or to deprive a thing of its proper functions. Some of you know it by the word kenosis. There's a whole kenosis theory. What does it mean that Jesus emptied himself? Two passages explain this word. The first is found in the passage we just read where it says that Christ emptied himself. Keep your place in Philippians 2. Let me read you the other verse. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became what? Poor. So that by his poverty, you might become rich. See, these verses explain the height from which the eternal Son descended when He took on flesh. In both cases, in both Philippians 2.7 and 2 Corinthians 8.9, in both cases, Jesus became something He was not. He was never this before. He was never a servant in human form before. Right? He was never that. So the emptying has to do with something that He takes upon Himself. And he was never poor before. That never happened in all of eternity with the Son of God. He was never in human form and he was never poor. And that should have never changed. But why did it change? Why do we have so many good Christmas songs? Old and new. Why do we sing about this? Why are we amazed? Why for a whole month have we set aside a focus on Christ coming in the flesh? Why have we done that? Because Jesus had glory with the Father before the world began. Listen to what he prays in John 17. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. There's a lofty height, an an eternal glory that Jesus enjoyed. Why should he have left that? Donald MacLeod wrote, Christ possessed all the majesty of deity, performed all its functions and enjoyed all its prerogatives. He was invulnerable to pain, frustration and embarrassment. He existed in unclouded serenity His supremacy was total, his satisfaction complete, and his blessedness perfect. There was no reason that that should have changed. 
So why did it? Because God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish. You know why that changed? Because of you and me. That's why that changed. There's really two big ideas here. Uh, first of all, I want, I want us to consider this as we consider the Christmas message. When it says Christ emptied Himself, what does that mean? And why does that even exist here in Philippians chapter 2? Look at, look at chapter 2, verse 6. Who, though He was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, verse 7, but emptied Himself. Here's what part of the emptying looks like. Here's why it happened. Because first, Christ did not insist on His own rights. I think you've already sensed by the tone, this is not going to be a sentimental Christmas message, right? Where we compare parts of the German and American festivities to parts of Christianity. But here's, here's what makes Christmas merry. Christ did not insist on His own rights. Christ, the eternal Son of God, whom angels worship, did not grasp on to the fact that He should never change. This refers to the unselfish disregard of one's own things and interests. So, just, look, just create your own contrast. I'll, 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 do, I'll, I'll do two things. Eternal glory in heaven was exchanged for a little town in Bethlehem. The eternal worship of angelic beings whom we would be tempted to worship ourselves was exchanged for a horrific place less than 10 miles from Bethlehem called Golgotha. Why? Because Christ did not insist on His own rights. The highest king and object of heaven's worship willingly occupied a feeding trough intended for livestock and a wooden cross intended for criminals. He did not insist on his own rights. That's why Paul uses this doctrine. He, Paul isn't just putting forth this doctrine to teach us about the incarnation. He's actually putting forth this doctrine to sway a local church away from living out of alignment with that. Christ already had equality with God. As such, He had the right to be worshipped, revered, recognized, served by angels, and honored by all. He already had all that. His coming did not get Him more of that. He had the right not to be dependent upon the sustenance of a young woman. He had the right not to be nursed by a young mom. He had the right to be immune from poverty and pain. He had the right not to be a human child. He had the right not to be arrogantly questioned by religious leaders. He had the right not to hang naked on a cross and suffer humiliation. He had the right not to die because He's the Prince of Life. But Christ did not regard His rights as something to be clung on to. Why? Because we needed rescue. We needed to be saved. See, there's, you'll never understand the depths of humiliation until you understand the heights of the glory of God. These were His rights, as Paul says, being in the form of God, sharing equality with God. 
but he did not insist on keeping those rights. So the natural question then, as Paul is writing it in this context, is if you don't have peace in your hearts this morning, what is it that you are clutching on to as a believer? Or as an unbeliever, why reject the Prince of Peace as King and Savior? Are we under the delusion that we have more or better rights than the Son of God? Let me read to you Paul's writing. Just listen. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, and there is, any comfort from His love, and there is, any participation in the Spirit, and there is, any affection and sympathy from what Christ has done and how He loves you, there is. The Apostle Paul says, then complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. But they don't deserve it. It's exactly why Paul is appealing to the incarnation of Jesus Christ and him not grasping onto his own rights. We didn't deserve it either, did we? There is no reason that eternal glory for the Son should have changed, but it did because he did not insist on his own rights. So then, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this a mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. Christ did not insist on his own rights. And the second big idea this morning is Christ emptied himself. And he emptied himself in three ways, or you might say three movements in a line. Look at Philippians 2 verse 7 again. But emptied himself. How did he do that? By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Philippians 2, 7 to 8 suggests two things. It was himself he humbled, and the way he emptied himself was by taking something rather than by losing something. Many of us are familiar with Charles Wesley's hymn, And Can It Be, one of the, the third stanzas says, He left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace, emptied himself of all but love. And I don't think Wesley was trying to define here the kenosis or the emptying of Christ, because if he was, we'd be left with a Christ that is not fully God. He laid aside his rights, not his deity. He emptied himself, not of his divine prerogatives, but of his rights. He took the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. It is what Christ assumed that humbled and impoverished him, not what he lost. He took the form of a servant. He took the likeness of humanity. He took death in its most aggravated form. That's the emptying. He did not lose his deity. He took upon himself humanity. Christ emptied himself in three ways. First, he took the form of a servant. You see this in verse 7. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. This is interesting because in the Messianic prophecies, especially in Isaiah 52 and 53, um, 
Yahweh calls him my servant. My servant will deal prudently. And by the way, Jesus, as a man, understood that he was the fulfillment of Isaiah 52 and 53. He would have understood that his face was so marred that it was beyond recognizing who he was. The servant knew that was his work to do. See, from eternity, he was a son to the father. Now he becomes a servant under law, bound to obey, charged with a work to do. What is the work? To seek and to save the lost. To atone for the sins of sinners. Galatians 4, 4 and 5. Born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. That's the work. He took the form of a servant. Eternal Son now has a work he must obey. And he willingly did that for you and me. Secondly, he emptied himself a second way in that he assumed a public image that was entirely human. Look at verse 7 again. He emptied himself. Now go to the, go to the second thought. By being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. Now, it's interesting that those at Philippi who were causing trouble were concerned about whose image? Their own. They were concerned about whose rights? Their own rights. They were concerned that others thought well of them. They were anxious of others' glory towards them. Part of Christ's emptying, folks, is that he took on human likeness and a human form. And because he did that, he was totally misunderstood by the people he walked among. Because when they saw him, isn't that the son of the carpenter? Oh, did you hear about that? Did you hear about how, how Mary got pregnant? Scandalous. Oh, he's okay. I mean, you're one of us. You're going to say these things about yourself? You're, you say you've seen Abraham? I mean, how old are you? Christ, the one who really was somebody, put himself in a position where people totally misunderstood him. That's part of the emptying of himself. He took on a human likeness, a human form. And we do the opposite. We try to do everything we can to look better than we really are, right? Right? We try to cover up our warts and our inconsistencies and we try to present this thing. And Christ emptied himself by taking a form that he'd never had before and where he was totally misunderstood. When many looked at Jesus, they saw nothing but a man. Listen to what Isaiah 53 says. For he grew up before him, this is talking about the servant, like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. How would you describe a little plant? Or a root in dry ground? What would be your descriptions? See, many rejected Messiah, the servant, simply because of his ordinary beginnings. Right? A family that had no status in the community. A feeding trough. I mean, they didn't even have enough clout in Bethlehem. 
to get into an inn. The son of a carpenter, peasant, small plant, dry root in the ground. They didn't expect him to grow up in their midst just like everyone else. They didn't expect him to be a baby and to be dependent upon a mother or to grow up as a young boy with other young boys or to have a common name, Yeshua. They didn't expect that. There's no majesty in him. They didn't expect him to attend the synagogue faithfully. They didn't expect him to have to be at religious feasts. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. Jesus didn't just suddenly burst onto the scene as this tall, majestic tree. He was fragile. He was overlooked and he was misunderstood. Isaiah describes another reason the servant may have faced rejection. He had no form or majesty. Those are two words that mean beauty and form or physique. He had neither of those. Right? See, an unattractive person can still be really attractive in form, right? Like muscular. Or you can not really have much form, but still have this beauty and attractiveness about you. Do you know that Jesus had neither? Yes, that does mean that most of the Sunday school material is inaccurate. And, and artists have presented a false picture of the Christ. Jesus stood out in neither beauty nor form. And that is why so many people initially thought him of no importance. Our sensual judgments would have rated Jesus as a zero. And it didn't benefit you socially to be in close contact with him. a matter of fact, when he came near... People hid their faces. Oh, yeah, he's going to say hi to me. Right? You ever have that feeling with someone? But we never relate that with Jesus, do we? We always thought, man, it's so good to be in his presence. It was not socially advantageous for you to be in Jesus' presence. People hid their faces. They were ashamed of him. He wasn't beautiful. He didn't have a form that was attractive. And people hid their faces. He assumed a public image it was entirely human. He emptied himself by being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. Isaiah describes the servant as despised, despised and rejected. He did not follow what most people think is the path to great leadership. Isaiah 53.3 indicates a sweeping rejection by the general populace. They said to the Son of God, no. The servant's life was marked by sorrow and he knew suffering and grief well. Isaiah says, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Why? Why does that describe Jesus? A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Well, he knows, he knows our serious predicament, doesn't he? And he knows we don't care about our serious predicament. And he's not neutral to that, folks. He's a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He knows our hate and our pride. I mean, he sees it in the heart just like he looked at one of his disciples and already knew that he was a good man. But he could also see the hate and the pride and the jealousy. And he knew that the wages of sin is death. And he knew, as his half-brother taught, that when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. 
And sin is always the death of something. Isaiah likens the servant to one from whom men hide their faces. Again, this stresses that people did not esteem him as anyone special. He would not have been invited into the VIP crowd. He was on the outskirts and on the fringe, and if he came near, people hid their faces. See, that's amazing to me, isn't it? That's truly amazing to me. That this eternal Son, being worshipped by angels, immune to poverty and shame and nakedness and dependence on anything, is born as a baby to a young mother, to a carpenter peasant, and is misunderstood his entire life, and the capstone of that life as he is hanging by the crossroads, naked for all to see. Merry Christmas. This is what makes Christmas so amazing, is the third point of emptying. Look at verse 8. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now remember, in Christ's original form, he was immune to death. Now he has to submit to it. Death death was now obedience for him. Why? Because he didn't insist on his own rights. His right not to suffer. His right not to die. His, His right not to know what nakedness was in a sinful world, right? By the choice of Adam and Eve, all of a sudden nakedness is what it was never before. And now he has to endure that. What is truly amazing is that Christ took death in its most aggravated form, crucifixion. See, if you understand crucifixion, it was designed to deliberately delay death until the maximum torment had been inflicted. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. It wasn't just that he was crucified, but as he hung there, he became the symbol of one who was cursed by God himself. Poverty, misunderstanding, rejection, spit drips off his beard, blood is caked on his slashed back, thorns pressed into his brow, soldiers laugh as they've either become sadistic or numb to torture. This is all part of the Christmas story. Christ was born for the express purpose of dying for sinful people. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. He emptied himself by assuming a public image that was entirely human. And he emptied himself by taking death. He knew why he came. He came to die. I just tried to put a list down as the eternal son empties himself and comes among us. Why? Gossip, idolatry, a critical tongue, pornography, hate, anger, crude joking, kidnapping, jealousy, pride, murder, selfishness, adultery, Lying, abuse, 
bitterness. For this reason, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. In John 18.37, Pilate asks to me what becomes an intriguing question. He says, so you are a king? Remember this in John? Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. Listen to what he says. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Are you of the truth this morning? Have you heard his voice? Have you seen his example? See, here is the meaning of Christmas. God took the initiative to send his son so that sin could be paid for, thus forgiving guilty people by a gift of grace. Christmas isn't about exchanging gifts. It's about one gift. And one gift given freely so that those who believe, they receive it by faith. That's what, that's what Matthew sees in Christ's birth. Matthew 121. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. The manger leads to the cross where the prince of life is killed, where the eternal word is temporarily muzzled, where the bread of life is rejected and where the light of the world is seemingly extinguished. But Jesus rose again on the third day. So he is the bread of life. He is the resurrection and the life. He is the light of the world. I want to close with an illustration. Many of you have read the story of John and Betty Stam, who served as missionaries in China. They had been marched up to a hill after they refused to stop preaching the gospel or to leave the people they had grown to love and God sent them to. They both were told to kneel down. And I forget who was beheaded first, but it was one first and then the other by the sword of the Chinese. There was a man named Frank Hewton who was serving as the editorial secretary for the China Inland Mission. And he made a trip to China in 1934 to see firsthand the progress of the work. And he went in and he actually journeyed to these hostile places, even where John and Betty Stam had been executed just to see the condition of his missionaries and of the national believers. Many other missionaries had been captured by the Communist Red Army and were released in poor health and some were never seen again. And he wrote, he actually, while he was traveling around these areas of China, he was meditating on one of our texts we referred to this morning, which is 2 Corinthians 8-9. Though he was rich, yet for, for your sake he became poor. And thinking especially on the death of John and Betty Stam, he took that verse and he wrote a Christmas hymn that is not well known. I just want to read it. It's so, it's so unknown, I don't even know the tune to this hymn. It's called, Thou Who Wast Rich Beyond All Splendor. Frank Hewton writes, Thou who was rich beyond all splendor, all for love's sake became poor. Thrones for a manger did surrender, sapphire paved courts for stable floor. Thou who was rich beyond all splendor, all for love's sake becomes poor. Thou who art God beyond all praising, all for love's sake becamest man. Stooping so low, but sinners raising heavenward, by thine eternal plan, thou who art God beyond all praising, 
all for love's sake becamest man. The third stanza reads, Thou who art love beyond all telling, Savior and King, we worship Thee. Emmanuel, within us dwelling, make us what Thou wouldst have us be. Thou who art loved beyond all telling, Savior and King, we worship Thee. Are you a king? This is why I came into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Close your Bibles and just listen to the text once more this morning. I'll ask you to bow your head as I read God's word and then give us about 30 seconds for silent response. And then I'll close in prayer and invite the worship team forward. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And as we await for Christ's second advent, I want to remind us as a church that while people were shaming and ridiculing the Son of God, the Father was exalting him. The very next verses that follow our text this morning says, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in every and in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father. Let's take a moment for silent response.